All right. Let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, as we come before your throne this morning, we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to uh, look into your word, to discuss things which concern our life in this world and also in the world to come. Thank you, Father, for the gracious gift of your son, who is indeed the only savior and our only savior, the one who has saved us from our sins and Father, we just pray for those we know, those in our families, those even in our church who do not know you, truly know you as their Savior and Lord. We pray, Father, that you would draw them to yourself through your word and through your spirit. Father, we just uh, thank you again for our time together. May uh, we all be encouraged in our faith by this discussion and may we live lives reflective of our relationship with you every day of our life. And we pray this in the name, which is above every name, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior and soon coming King, amen. Okay, introducing myself. Most of you know me already. My name is Chesley Campbell. Um, my wife, Linda, and I have been here at New Community Church from the very beginning. Uh, we started New Community with Pastor Jerry and Cindy and a group of others. Um, I served as an elder for 33 years um, alongside Pastor Jerry. Um, you probably know that I'm related to him through my wife, which is his sister. Uh, we have been close for a very long time and inseparable, inseparable yes. Um, <laughs> and still are. Uh, a lot of people don't know this about me. When I first came to know Christ as my savior, Pastor Jerry discipled me for the first two years of my life in Christ. And then when he said, I'm leaving to take a pastorate in uh, Fox Lake, Illinois, I said, now what am I gonna do? So he said, why don't you go to Moody Bible Institute? So I thought, hey, that's a good idea. So I went and got the uh, set up for the next semester, brought it to him, I says, pick my classes, because he knew the teachers. And he did, and I was off and running and graduated from their evening program uh, four years later. The interesting thing, we're talking about Roman Catholicism. I was born and raised a Catholic as Linda was, Cindy, Jerry. My mother, once I told her I was going to go to Moody Bible Institute, she had to run to her pastor, her, her priest, and tell him, is this okay? Well, what she was thinking, I said, Moonies. <laughs> it, it's Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, Illinois. And uh, so I thought that was very interesting. But uh, there you have a little background on me. I, been studying the Bible for a long time alongside my dear wife and many others who have come to New Community Church and who've come and gone and uh, consider it an honor to have served this church and continue to support this church. Uh, Pastor Rich and the elders here. Um, and I think that our church is a fine church and one that we should give ourselves to. Uh, and so with that said, what I'd like to do 
instead of doing a, an overview of what Pastor Jerry said, because we're going to cover a lot of those integral points in our lesson today, because what he was talking about was the, was the, uh, the difference uh, of the matter of salvation between our church and the Catholic Church. Today, I'm going to talk about the issue specifically of salvation, or how, as, as your notes say, how can a sinful man be made right, or a sinful mankind be made right with the Holy God? And so we're going to cover a lot of points that have been addressed earlier. But before I do that, stay with me here. Before I begin our lesson for today, I would like to share something with you. I've shared this in various settings and at various times, but I feel the need to begin with it today. The question we ask is how we who call ourselves Christians view the Bible matters. How, it, how we view it matters. Why do you think it matters, our view of the Bible, for those who call themselves Christians? Why does that matter? It's God's word. Okay. It's the foundation of everything we believe. It's the foundation of everything we believe. Anyone else? It's like a map leading us through life. It's like a map leading us to life and life eternal. So there's three points I want to cover regarding how we must view the Bible. And the first one is we must view the, the Bible as complete. What do I mean by that? No additional revelation. You know what happens a lot of times in our evangelical world? Somebody says, God told me, or I heard from the Spirit, or they give a statement that is not contained in the Bible and demand and command people to observe it and to obey it. God does not give us that uh, leeway, if you will. We see in the Bible 66 books and letters, and that's it. Contrary to the Catholic Church, who has the apocryphal books, which adds another 15 or so, dependent upon the version, into their Bible. And just as a footnote, that's one of the ways they came up with several of the doctrines, including purgatory. And we're going to address purgatory in a minute. Um, so. God's complete revelation, 66 books from eternity past to eternity future. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then we, we're going to see at the end the new heavens and the new earth, which uh, John, the Apostle John, refers to in the um, book of Revelation. The second thing, sufficient. The Bible is sufficient to save the lost and to sanctify the saved, right? Um, when you think about, well, turn to, in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2. In 2 Timothy 2, starting when Paul was writing to Timothy, he was talking about Timothy's own conversion. And he says this in verse 14, 
You, speaking to Timothy, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Jesus Christ. So the Bible is sufficient to save the lost. It's also sufficient to sanctify the saved. Then he goes on in verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Second Timothy three. I said two. My apologies. That was wrong. <laughs> I didn't get shocked. I'll, I'll read it again. Um, verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So, or as Peter said regarding the sufficiency of the Bible, he says it's e equipping us for life and godliness, right? So the Bible does that to us. Now, the third thing, so first complete, we have to understand the Bible to be complete. 66 books, no other revelation, that is which God has given to us. The second is sufficient, that the Bible is sufficient to save the lost and to sanctify the saved. And thirdly, it is true. It is true. Now, when you think about the Bible, the Bible corresponds to reality or the way things really are. In a society like we live in today, truth is what people think it is. It's called relativity. It's relative to the person who's speaking or feeling. The unfortunate thing, a lot of what we hear today is not true. It doesn't correspond to the way things really are. The Bible does, regardless of what it speaks about or to. It corresponds to that which is good. John 17, 17, Jesus says, sanctify them in truth regarding his people. He says, thy word is truth. That's in J Jesus' high priestly prayer. In Psalm 119, the sum of thy word is truth, the psalmist said. So we know that the Bible is complete, sufficient, and true. And why do I believe that this is important? Because the one who gave us the word is complete, is sufficient, and true. We should not be looking outside of it in order to um, grow, spiritually speaking. We shouldn't seek outside of it in order to lead someone to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. A lot of people say we have to um, allow the spirit to work. Well, the spirit only works through the word of God. Peter also talked about it was the spirit who moved the men to write the word of God. So he, as the source, then substantiates that through teaching, equipping, encouraging, sanctifying, and saving. 
So if I didn't have this attitude, if you didn't have this attitude about the Bible, guess what? We wouldn't be satisfied with the answers we get by studying it or reading it, right? We'd look elsewhere. We'd go elsewhere if we weren't satisfied that the Word of God is complete, sufficient, and true. Look at Ephesians 4 real quick and see what happens when people do that. Ephesians chapter 4. I think I said that right this time. In Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 11, And he gave some as apostles, and some as past prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Pastor Rich addressed that issue about love, right? The necessity that we as believers have to express the love of Christ within the framework of the body of Christ. Guess what? We can't love as we ought if we don't know as we ought. And if we don't know the word of God, we can't love like Christ loved us. There'll be a deficiency in our love. And so it's, it's imperative that we study, as Paul wrote to Timothy again, he says, study or be diligent to show yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. You can't accurately handle what you don't know. And so this is the view of the Bible I think that we should come into any study with. And today in particular, the study of Roman Catholicism and the subject, how can sinful man be made right with the holy God? So in your notes here, as we begin, it states, this question has been asked and debated as far back as the time of Abraham and Job. It was raised by Eliphaz, one of the friends of Job. Quote, can mankind be just before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Job 4.17. Bildad, another friend of Job, sought to know Quote, how then can a man be just with God? Or how can he be clean who is born of woman? Job 25, 4. And even Job asks, quote, how can a man be in the right before God? Job 9, 2. And King Solomon made the point, quote, indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. <clears throat> Ecclesiastes 7, 20. Implicit in Solomon's statement is that if mankind is to ever be made right with a holy God, it won't be accomplished even by a righteous man who does good. It would have to be achieved by the intervention of an all-powerful and righteous God. What's interesting, all of those who we've quoted understood something about themselves and mankind in general. What was that? 
we're sinners. But I think their, their understanding carried into the fact that not only are we sinners and everyone is a sinner, but we don't deserve anything but the holy wrath of a holy God. Why? Because we have no one to save us from ourselves other than him. And this is the, the point of distinction, I believe, between Roman Catholicism and New Community Church. There's nothing I can do to be saved. Nothing. I can't do anything that will save me. God must do it. And so I want to look, uh, address a, a second point. And what I'd like to do is uh, read Romans 3. And just talk about that just a bit. Romans chapter 3, that's cited in, in your uh, notes there, 9 through 18. Paul asks the question, what then? Are we better than they? He's referring to the Jews. He says, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is no, none who, no one who understands. There is no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. <clears throat> Every man is a sinner. Paul addresses that here and says, "Every man sins. Every man, th his his in his thinking, in his actions, and in his attitude, he's a sinner. So, replete throughout all of man, he's only a sinner." and subject to the just wrath of a holy God. Um, as a result of what we see here, I just want to touch on several things. First of all, man is spiritually blind. What do I mean by that? He has an innate inability to know and understand spiritual truth. Um, that's why if you were to talk to somebody in your family uh, who's an unbeliever, and you try to share the truth of the Bible with them, oftentimes, as Jerry said last week, you meet with what? A blank face. Or you, you, uh, you meet with animosity. I remember, um, this is probably something you don't know about me, I was raising a housing project in Chicago. And uh, one of the things I felt compelled to when I came to know Christ was go back to the housing project and share the gospel. So what I did was I brought a couple pocketfuls of New Testaments, my Bible, and started walking through the projects. The first guy I ran into was a Fat Ray. He's a big black guy I used to hang around with. And uh, GJ. George Jackson. They were sitting there sharing a half pint of whiskey, which was part of my lot in life years ago. 
So anyway, I walked up to them, and so I hear from Ray, he gets up and he says, what the blankety blank do you want here? And so I says, I came here to tell you guys that you're sinners and you're in need of a savior, and I'm gonna tell you about him. So he grabbed me by my shirt, pulled me to him, and as he's starting to give me what for, if you will, he stopped and he said, you know, one of us had to get out of here. And then he hugged me. And I was able to share the gospel with him and George. And I did that, actually, I took Linda with me uh, once or twice, but um, I had people coming out of their, you know, the projects I lived in was row housing. And I had people coming out asking for New Testaments, asking for a Bible. And it, it was incredible. I remember I, in order to share with some of the guys, I had to play b-ball, uh, basketball. And so I played a game of basketball, took my Bible out, had them all sitting around and shared Christ with them and answered questions about the Bible and about the person of Christ. But the point being is that oftentimes you're met with a blank stare or anger even hatred, if you will. Um, back when we were in Chicago working together, there was this one young Jewish lady. I was passing out Bibles where I worked. What did I know, right? And uh, she was Jewish, and she didn't want the Bible. She says, get away from me, I don't, I don't want that. Well, it's interesting that a day or so later, she came up to me and tapped me on the shoulder and she says, do you have that Bible? She wanted it then. The Word of God is the only thing that's going to save sinners from themselves, right? So anyway, people are spiritually blind. Um, also, people are spiritually dead. In Ephesians 2, Paul says, of, says to the Ephesians, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And then thirdly, they're spiritually lost. In Luke 19.10, Jesus said of himself that he had came to seek and to save that which was lost. So mankind, people are spiritually blind, spiritually dead, and spiritually lost. And in such a condition, there's no one, no matter how desirous or determined or capable in their own eyes, is able to secure their salvation by any effort on their part. Any. Scripture is clear. Salvation is of the Lord. You and I did not deserve salvation. You and I could not earn our salvation. And you and I cannot cooperate with God in our salvation. So, with mankind in such a dire condition, <laughs> that's a good start, isn't it? Looking at the condition of man. This is what these friends of Job and Job himself and Solomon understood that man is in a position of deadness, spiritual deadness, and has the innate inability not to be able to do anything about it. So during the Protestant Reformation, <clears throat> back to your notes, that took place in the 16th century, the issue of how sinful mankind can find salvation 
and be declared right, standing with a holy God was the material cause of the Reformation. The formal cause was the issue of what <clears throat> should be the source authority that establishes the faith and practices of the Christian church. The reformers argued that the source authority of our faith and practice must be the scriptures alone. Uh, we cited 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 already. But the material cause of the Reformation is the issue of how sinful mankind could be made right before a holy God. The Protestant Reformation had as its purpose the Reformation of the Roman Catholic Church of their time. There were five solas, which is Latin for only, that the Reformers strongly believed needed to be accepted and assimilated by the Roman Catholic Church <clears throat> for the true Reformation to become a reality. They are number one, sola scriptura, scripture alone, as its source authority. We already cited 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Sola fide, faith alone. Uh, faith is to trust in. What does Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 say? Good, say it. Okay. Paul understood and declared, pardon? Exactly. It's a gift. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It, salvation, is a gift from God. Just ask yourself this question. As students of the word of God, as, as those who believe that it is complete, sufficient, and true, what is a gift? It's something that's given, not earned. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, to emphasize the point, lest any man should boast. Pastor Jerry, I like, he always says, what does that mean? He says, does God receive all the glory, some of the glory? No, he receives all of the glory. He doesn't share his glory with anybody or anything, right? And so consequently, again, sola fide, faith alone, sola gratia, grace alone. Uh, grace is unmerited, unearned favor. Uh, look at one passage here real quick. Titus chapter three. We're probably gonna be coming back here in a little bit, but in, in uh, Titus three, five, it states this. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Do you see that? It's a supposed righteousness. It's not an actual righteousness, right? Because we couldn't do anything righteous as sinners. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Again, accentuating the fact there's nothing we can do not if, even if we viewed it righteously, because Paul accentuated the fact that there is none righteous, not even one. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned away and gone their own way. Okay. Um, uh, four, sola Christo, Christ alone. Christ is the only exclusive savior. John 14, six, what does that say? I am the way the truth and the life. 
No man comes to the Father except through me. He is the gate, if you will. He talked about that in John chapter 10. <clears throat> the source of all we need is in him. That's it. That's it. For our salvation, he has the key, if you will. He is the key to our salvation. There is nobody else or nothing else that we should or can depend on. Uh, Acts 4.12 is another great passage. There's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Next paragraph. In a sense, all five of the solas has to do with the topic that is the title of this study. According to the official teaching of the Roman church, a person is saved or justified through what? A cooperative effort of faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ plus meritorious works and one's participation in the sacraments. Their formula for salvation is a cooperative system of faith plus works. When my mother was dying, my mother raised me and my five sisters as Catholics. We, we went to church. I was the only one in our family who went to Catholic school. I went through eight years of Catholic school, four years in grammar, and four years of high school. And uh, <clears throat> the, the sad thing about it is that in Catholic teaching, Christ's sacrificial death is necessary for the salvation of one's soul, but not sufficient. The individual who seeks salvation has to add their own works to that work of Christ. There's nowhere in scripture that says that. Nowhere. That's why how we view the Bible matters. That's why I stated that at the very beginning. Because if we don't view the Bible as complete, sufficient, and true, guess what? We can't add our thoughts to it. We can't accept other things. And then guess what? Ephesians 4, we're tossed here and bare by every wind of doctrine, by trickery of men and craftiness and deceitful scheming, if we don't stay with Scripture. Yes? No, no. The, the reason they say that is because their source authority is tradition and the Pope, who they call the Vicar of Christ. Did you understand how terrible that is? The Vicar of Christ here on earth is the Holy Spirit. He's the representation of Christ. Remember, he said he'd come and glorify me, Jesus said in John 14. And that's what he's doing. He's coming to glorify him by focusing our attention on the word of God and the work that he calls us to, which is, Kevin, the evangelism, right, of the lost. And even Pastor, Jerry, uh, Pastor, Jerry, excuse me, Pastor Rich this morning, take that up. <laughs> Pastor Rich this morning spoke to that about our responsibility as a congregation. We must love each other, but we also must love those who are outside the church by bringing them the gospel of truth. 
All right. Um, oh, what I was going to tell you about this necessary but not sufficient. I can't tell you how many times I said that when my mom was dying, because I would, I came with my Bible, sat by her bed, read scripture to her, specific scripture related to the gospel. And then I would stop and I said, say, mom, do you trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ for the salvation of your soul apart from anything that you have done or can do or will do? I, I was very, very clear about that because being raised a Catholic, I understood that his death is necessary but not sufficient. And the only way they get that is if you walk away from Scripture and accept tradition and uh, the Pope as the authorities. And it's, it's really sad. So uh, back to our notes. Uh, according to the Catholic Church, the next, um, oh, did I finish that first in, in the sense? Did I finish that paragraph? Okay. The next paragraph, faith in Christ is only the beginning of salvation according to the Roman Catholic Church. The individual must build upon that with good works because God's grace of eternal salvation must be merited. Does that even sound for those of you who know what the Word of God says, does that even sound close? Essential to the Roman Catholic doctrine of salvation are the seven sacraments, which are baptism, confirmation, the Eucharist, penance, anointing of the sick, holy orders, and matrimony. These sacraments must be observed by those who seek to be saved. The Roman Catholic Church has a high view of the efficiency, of efficacy of the sacrament of baptism because they believe that this sacrament brings a person into a state of grace. They propose that in the observance of this baptism, the righteousness of Jesus is infused or poured into the soul of the child or adult who is being baptized. This infusion of righteousness of, of Christ enables the person to do their part of righteous works in the process of seeking the salvation of their soul. Um, again, faith in Christ is only the beginning of salvation. The individual must build upon that with good works because God's grace of eternal salvation must be merited. Another way of putting it is that the sanctification, that sanctification is the means for procuring justification. One of the things that I, I found out in my own study and, and in teaching is how people misdefine biblical terms. Sanctification, justification, regeneration. You know, these, these ver words are very important to know the meaning of. I would encourage you to get a Bible dictionary and to have a fingertip knowledge of these terms. Uh, when you think about it, <clears throat> um, if you don't have the right definition, guess what? You believe what you hear, right? Instead of what actually is. I took this definition out of a Bible dictionary and I'm gonna read it to you, the definition of sanctification. It is the process by which according to the will of God, we are made partakers of his holiness. That is a progressive work 
that it is begun at regeneration and that it is carried on in the hearts of believers by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, the sealer and comforter in the continual use of the appointed means, in particular, the word of God and its application and prayer. Uh, the, the thing is, it's a spirit work in our life. Sanctification is not our work for God. It's the work of God for us. He's sanctifying us, setting us more and more apart unto him. <clears throat> in this life, you can never know with certainty. This is the uh, Catholic Church continues. <clears throat> you can never know with certainty that you have accumulated enough good works in the pursuit of an, of an eternal destiny in the presence of the Lord. To say that you know that you are saved and possess eternal life and you will enter God's heaven at the point of death or when Jesus comes for his church makes you guilty of the sin of presumption. Remember, Pastor Jerry said he, a Catholic priest told him <coughs> when he told the Catholic priest that he knows he's saved, he accused Jerry of being uh, guilty of the sin of presumption. From New Community, uh, from Roman Catholic traditions and their reliance on non-canonical books, the Catholics have developed the doctrine of purgatory. It's a place or state <clears throat> of purification where the souls of those who have died in a state of grace, but whose souls have not yet been fully purified from the stain of sin. And who determines that? Not God. Undergo a process of cleaning or cleansing before they can enter heaven. It is taught by the Roman Catholic Church that this process is necessary because nothing unclean can enter heaven and that it is a continuation of the process of sanctification that begins in this life. The concept of purgatory is based on the belief that even though our sins may be forgiven through confession and absolution, we still carry the effects of sin with us, such as an attachment to worldly things, selfishness and pride. These imperfections must be purged before we can fully participate in the divine life of heaven. Purgatory is not a punishment, but rather a merciful opportunity for souls to be purified according to the Catholic Church. Uh, again, go back to that Titus passage, Titus chapter 3, and we're going to read a little more of that. And starting at verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I have another question, and it's a long question, so listen close. 
how can a perfect God who sent his perfect son to offer a perfect sacrifice to secure eternal salvation or heaven, if you will, for all whom he has chosen for salvation before the foundation of the world need anything from us, much less our own sin-stained efforts. One of the things that I, I fear personally, this is just a personal fear I have, is that Christians are some of the most illogical people I know. You know, they, they, they come up against people who have this fallacious reasoning about why God doesn't exist, about why uh, uh, Christ could not be the only savior. And we, as Christians, oh, we shrink back. We, we can't debate this. Well, I'll give you one more illustration with my son-in-law. Just to show logic and as a Christian that we can use logic. It's a God-given grace to us, isn't it? My son-in-law, we're, is it Thanksgiving or something? Linda, our daughter, Leda, and John, my son-in-law, and I were sitting around the table. And just out of the blue, my son-in-law turns to me and says, how do you think we got here? How, how do you think the world came to be? How do you think everything came to be? I said, thank you, Lord, for the opportunity. Um, so I said to him, let me ask you a question. I know he was, he was looking to, you know, get under my skin. Maybe not. But I said, let me ask you this question. What do you believe happened? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, or everything came out of nothing. And he, he had this look on his face, and he looked at me, and he said, now that you put it that way, Christians don't accept fallacious reasoning or an, an antagonistic individual and, and be shied away from telling the truth. I just, as a statement to you, please don't do that. You know, we, we give away so much. But anyway, how can God, who's perfect, who sends a son who's perfect, who offered a perfect sacrifice, I'm going to accentuate this. Look at Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. Chapter 10. I know we read through part of this before, but it'll accentuate what I just said. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sin? It's a good question, isn't it? But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible 
for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have, it is written of the scroll, <clears throat> is in the scroll of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying the above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first to, in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, awaiting, waiting for a time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit testifies to us after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After these days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind, I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will never, I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. See the completeness of the work of the Son of God on Calvary's tree. There's nothing else you can do to receive forgiveness of sins other than turning from your sins and trusting in Jesus Christ for the salvation of your soul. He did all the work. He did all the work. Um, <clears throat> in Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result, right, of works, lest any man should boast. But then in verse 10, he says, for we are Christ's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What's interesting is two things. The works come after the salvation, right? And he prepared us to do that, and he pr even prepared the works for us to do. That's a sovereign God in action, isn't it? We couldn't even muster up good works if it wasn't for him preparing them for us to do. The difference between the Roman Catholic Church and the Reformers regarding the formula of salvation of the soul can be seen in a simple illustration. Roman Catholic view, faith plus works equal justification. As we read earlier, it's a process in their thinking. Salvation is a process. That's why I said they misdefine sanctification. Sanctification is a process which God makes us more and more like Christ. Justification is a completed act predicated upon the work of Jesus Christ to save the souls Listen, of all the Father has given him. Do you think that this is just occurring in time? This was God's plan from the beginning. Let me show you.
just real quick. Look at John chapter 6. The reason I'm doing this is to try to accentuate the fact that it's not of man who wills or of man who does, but of God who has mercy, like Paul said in Romans chapter 9. So anyway, John chapter 6. Uh, beginning, well, there's a lot here. Beginning at verse 35, we'll start. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Listen to this. All that the Father gives me will come to me and I will certainly not cast out. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing but raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. What happened there? Verse 41. Who's grumbling? The Jews, the people he's talking to. Why? Because they were engrossed in a works righteousness system themselves. And Jesus was coming and saying, no, it's not about you. The Father has already chosen who's going to come to me, and those who come to me I will receive and will not cast out. This has been predetermined before the foundation of the world. Good question. Keep your finger here real quick and just turn forward to Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, and you've probably heard this many, many times, the passage we're going to look at is actually one sentence in the Greek. In Ephesians 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, just as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world. How could I do anything to earn this? That we would be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us to adoption of son, as sons, through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intentions, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable for the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, in heaven, uh, <clears throat> in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of whose will? After the work of whom? To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him also, after listening, listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, were sealed in the Holy Spirit with 
sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. You'll notice several things. Number one, salvation is of the Lord and it's by the Lord through his son, Jesus Christ. Everything has been foreordained from before the foundation of the world. And even the sealing of the spirit, who is essentially like a, um, a ring, an engagement ring, if you will, for a future day when we will be his at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Think about that. This is, in here, it's all stated. That's why if you don't believe the word of God is complete, sufficient, and true, you're gonna look elsewhere to tradition. You're, you're gonna look to the Pope. You're gonna look to the College of Cardinals. You're gonna look to your priest. So please understand this. This is not something I'm trying to make up. Paul, you got some? Back to the question about purgatory. Yes. How do they get that? I mean, you have to invent it, so how do they... I believe it's, it's, it's taken from Second Maccabees, which is an apocryphal book, and also from the statements of the tradition. Um, the thing is, if you think about it, I, I wish we had more time. If you think about it, let me go back to the notes here. When, when we talk about this issue of purgatory to purge, so, so essentially if you're Catholic, I've known so many Catholics and I've been one myself. It was the only church I ever entered into drunk. I remember going there drunk. Holy day of obligation, gotta be there. Went to Christmas Eve service. You know that, right? <laughs> This was before Lynn and I met. But anyway, um, but the point being is that you can be a Catholic and a terrible Catholic and in their view still go to heaven because now that you're gonna get sent to purgatory and if that doesn't work, you have the meritorious works of Jesus, the Virgin Mary and the saints you can draw from because they did so much in excess, they have so much they could share. Think about that. I'll give you the specific definition of what the sect's called. My notes are here, I got so many notes. Um, but Pastor Jerry passed this out and I would encourage you to get it. It's called the Treasury of Merit. He passed this, this out, I don't know if he did this session, but last session. It says in Roman Catholicism, the treasury of merit is the superabundant store of righteousness and good works belonging to Christ, the Virgin Mary, and the saints. The treasury of merit is filled with the merit of Christ and Mary, who were sinless. They believe Jesus' mother Mary was sinless. And why did she say in Luke chapter 2 that she needed a savior, right? Anyway, um, and the saints who had more than enough merit to enter heaven themselves. They had earned more spiritual rewards than they needed. This merit is now available to others to supplement their own meritorious works. 
The problem being is that when you think about what it says, and the saints, everybody who is in Christ in the Bible is called a saint. All of, all of us are saints. It's not based upon something we've done or didn't do. It's just based on the fact of our relationship with Jesus Christ through repentance and faith. Anyway, um, should I stop for questions? Any questions or thoughts? Yeah, indulgences. Yeah. 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 There was another monk. His name was was Tetzel, and they developed a, a scheme, if you will, in order to sell indulgences um, to benefit the Roman Catholics, and they started using that money for themselves and to build more ornate churches and, and places for, for occupancy. And there was a little ditty that went around and it's, it, was it was stated like this, as a coin in a coffer rings, a soul in purgatory flings. You know, that they thought that was because it was a good work. So you're helping people leave purgatory. And yeah, the whole system was a, a self-generated way in which people believed that you can do something to earn your salvation. And again, the Jews had the same thing. They believed in keeping of the law. That's why Paul wrote Romans 4. Let's, let's go there to Romans 4. He addresses that very thing. Uh, 4.1. <clears throat> what then shall we say of that Abraham, our forefather, according to flesh is found? For Abraham was justified by works. He has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credit to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works his wages is not credited as a favor, but as what is due but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. What's very interesting in this verse five, the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Roman Catholicism believes that you have to be made godly first before you can go to heaven. Scripture justifies us as sinners or ungodly, if you will, right? Through the work of Jesus Christ. And that is something that they can't answer. We are all ungodly and undeserving, as I said earlier. The only thing, if I had a big ego and you had a big ego, guess what? Maybe we could do some things like that, right? We'd still be wrong we'd still be dead in our trespasses and sins because there's nothing we can do to, to earn our salvation. Again, perfect God sends his perfect son to offer perfect sacrifice. What can we add to that? Which again, thinking logically, I'm trying to anyway, which is why God, before the foundations of the world, 
had to select whom he would save and Christ would die for. Understand, Jesus Christ did not die for the sins of the whole world and just everybody who believes is going to be saved and the rest won't. No, he didn't do that. There's no in scripture that he said he died for the sins of the whole world. It says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. You see, if you don't know what the scripture says, you could create that idea in your head, right? People have done that. And like I said, the Jews, Paul wrote this because the Jews believed that what they did earned them salvation. He, uh, he Pastor Jerry, even referred to, I believe it's uh, Luke 18, <clears throat> where the Pharisee was going, praying before God, I'm not like this, this uh, person here. What was that person that was with the Pharisee? Thank you. The tax collector who, you know, I fast time five times a week. I do this. I do that and do that. And then what did the tax collector do? He pounded his chest and he says, forgive me, a sinner. You see the difference? And it was the tax collector who went home justified, not the Pharisee. Why? Because he was looking at salvation to be a works righteousness system, which it's not. It is not. Yeah. Yes. No, I think that's more contemporary, because I know that um, uh, when Linda's mom died, we we had that. And um, they, they were saying masses for her to, to get her out of purgatory. Um, yeah, but that was... And again, there's a financial cost to right. the mass cards, That's the indulgences. Yep, you had to pay. Got to pay. Yeah. You know, even too is that, and this is one of the things, what do they say when you think of corruption? Follow the money. money. You know, even when my mom who was divorced, and my stepfather, who was divorced, wanted to get married again in the Catholic Church. That, that's anathema. You can't do that unless you pay. And they paid and got married in the Catholic Church. And I was sitting next to the priest who married them, and he was drunk as a skunk afterwards. <laughs> He was drinking, he was trying to talk to me, slurring his words. And I'm thinking, what an example, right? Anyway, I, I had a lot, of, a lot of stories referring to Catholicism being a Catholic myself. Um, you want to? It sounds like instead of being dependent on a priest, we would teach that we're totally dependent on Jesus. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Understand, look, because I'm standing up here teaching you, it doesn't make me any way superior to you. Do you understand that? Pastors, teachers, elders are not superior to you in the sight of God. We have a function within the context of the church. That's it. 
It's a functionality. It's, it's, it has no, nothing to do with superiority, okay? And, and, you know, I could tell you a story about when I spoke at my father's funeral and what the Catholic priest did to me there, but I'll leave that. You took me on all of this when, you know, when you started with Solo Scripture. Mm -hmm. Just the love and mercy that God has shown to us by, and, and, and his foreknowledge of understanding how we would so easily be misled. Yes. To give us Scripture that tells us who God is, that defines who God is, defines what our rebellion is, defines what his, right. his judgment will look like, yes. defines who Christ is and what sacrifice on our behalf he bestows. Yes. And, and then to tell us that we're going to rebel. We're going to continue to rebel because we want to be king. And mm. the scripture just tells us all the time, you're going to want to be God. Yeah. So pray and submit and read and learn and be sanctified in the spirit because we too could eat. I mean, all of the all of the false religions are just a little bit off at first. Just a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, if, if we would live 100 years from now, some of the things we call denominations now, I think, would be called cults because they just get those definitions a little bit off right because they didn't take solo scripture to be exactly they didn't say this is going to be our source authority yeah. not even what pastor jerry taught i think everything he's taught has been right right this church will never be founded on what pastor yeah. jerry taught it'll be, it'll be formed on what this teaches right remember and in as much as he teaches what this teaches we are going to rely on it exactly or for rich or whoever yeah 100 years from now if the lord tarries will a great verse, a great verse, Acts 17.10. The Bereans, they searched the scripture daily to see if what Paul taught was true. If Paul was investigated by the Bereans to see if he was teaching truth, we should do the same thing. You should do that to me, to, to anybody who teaches you, even in the smallest of settings, a one-on-one -on -one or the corporate setting. And then think through, pray through, ask questions. Ask questions. You, we need to do that. We need to do that. You, you can't grow otherwise. We have to be Berean-like. Yes? What, what I love about this class is that you have to know like, a lot of the specifics. But when I sit back and think about what it all means, I mean, I have a good friend who was a strong Catholic, and he's a very strong evangelical. He says Catholics, they're basically, and it's not that we don't love them. I mean, I have so many friends, modern-day Pharisees, like when you were describing earlier. But it's like the system is man-made. That's what you're teaching. And right. I understand. It's, there, yes, there's some things we agree on, but they diminish God, Jesus, and the Spirit. And I guess at a high level, I never really understood that i mean just yet there are many points of agreement but the essentials are so off i just struck by right again perfect god perfect son perfect spirit perfect word i mean how do you how do you 
you know, do anything better. How can we ever think that we could do anything better unless we're so arrogant? That's it. That's it. But again, Roman Catholicism is a system that has been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years to, um, how shall I put this? I want to be gentle and nice and kind and loving, but it's a system that self-generates, you know, because they get the money, they have the standards, they have the rules, you have to follow these rules or you're going to hell. Nobody wants to go to hell, right? I don't want to go to hell, do you? No. And so what, it's a system really of fear. Fear of being lost. And that's, that's any system of works righteousness system is like that. The Jews, that's why they can manipulate the people in the Christ time. They manipulate them because they were what? They were the upper echelon. They knew you got to follow us, what we say, what we do. Anyway, we're way past time. Any other questions before we go or statements? Addition, subtractions? Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Huh? It all comes down to pride. Yeah. The Mormons, the Book of Mormons, well, some person made those Yeah. Well, think about this. Here's one more statement to ponder. In the garden, what temptation was extended to, to Eve? Pride, right? Satan knows. Anyway, thanks for being here. Thank you,